Welcome to a special podcast series from Finnegan, exploring some of the hottest topics in the life sciences industry. In this episode, Finnegan partner Tom Irving interviews Finnegan partners Amanda Murphy and Jill McAlpine on inventorship. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this podcast on inventorship. I am joined today by Amanda Murphy and Jill McAlpine. So I'm going to propound the questions and they will give the answer. So my first question is for Amanda. Amanda, could you please tell us in the U.S., why is inventorship important? And can you give some examples? Well, Tom, there are three main reasons that inventorship is so important in the United States. The first is because inventorship is rooted in our Constitution. Article 8 says Congress may pass laws that preserve an inventor's exclusive right to his or her discoveries. So in the absence of an agreement to the contrary, each inventor of a patent owns 100% of the patented invention and may make, use, offer to sell, sell, import, or license the patented invention without the consent of the other inventors. In fact, each inventor can even disclaim the entire patent without the consent of the other inventors. So being named as an inventor gives you some pretty powerful rights. But inventorship is also important because it impacts patent validity. If a court determines that the inventorship on a patent is wrong and the patent owner does not correct the error, the patent will be held invalid. Plus, if the patent owner intentionally failed to name proper inventors, that can result in a finding of unenforceability due to inequitable conduct. And speaking of inequitable conduct, inventorship also impacts the duty of disclosure and the requirement to comply with the best mode, since each inventor owes these duties to the patent office. And finally, the third important aspect of inventorship is that it impacts the prior art status of certain references. Specifically, if a common inventive entity contributed to both the portion of the reference that's being relied on as prior art and to the subject matter of the claim in question, it may be possible to remove the reference as prior art under certain circumstances. So inventorship is important because it impacts patentability, patent validity, and who has access to the bundle of rights that come along with the patent grant. Jill, could you tell us and give some examples techniques you use to determine inventorship? Sure, Tom. Under U.S. law, an inventor is a person who's contributed to conception of the subject matter described in at least one claim in the patent or application. So the first step that I take in an inventorship analysis is to determine the scope and the meaning of the claims. And the threshold question in determining inventorship is who conceived the invention. Conception's the touchstone of inventorship and is normally defined as the formation in the mind of the inventor of a definite and permanent idea of the complete and operative invention. So once I understand the scope and meaning of the claims, I like to review any invention disclosure forms or early notes that help me assess any contributions to conception of the claim subject matter. Determining whether an individual's contribution rises to the level of inventiveness can be difficult. Generally, experimentation or reduction to practice doesn't rise to the level of inventiveness unless there's a nexus between that research or experimentation and the subject for which patent protection is sought. 
So in this context, carrying out routine testing or assisting an inventor in a lab may not rise to the level of a contribution that's sufficient to make one a co-inventor. Similarly, contributions of well-known concepts or information that's just part of the current state of the art is generally not deemed to be an inventive contribution either. So for example, if a person suggests adding or combining a well-known component that's included as a dependent claim, that may not constitute an inventive contribution. So it is a very fact-intensive, legally-driven inquiry. So the next step that I take in an inventor analysis is to interview potential inventors so that I can assess their contributions as well as their opinions regarding the contributions of others that they may know of. In general, my practice is to interview each potential inventor separately. And sometimes I have to interview people more than once if there's some question about his or her contribution, or I have some follow-up questions. In certain cases, such as where memories have faded or there's a dispute regarding contributions, I also like to review any contemporaneous documents that may be available. Lab notebooks, internal reports, meeting minutes, blog posts, published articles, and slides can all be useful for assessing inventive contributions. And you ask for an example. What comes to mind as a great example of the fact-intensive, specific nature of the inquiry that's required to identify all inventive contributions is the situation that underlay the Falana v. Kent State University case that came down from the Federal Circuit in 2012. And in that case, Falana, a researcher who worked for a spin-off company of Kent State University, had developed a synthetic protocol for making a novel class of chemicals. And he used that synthetic protocol to make at least one compound that fell within the class before he left the company. And after he left, Another researcher named Seed, who worked at the company, used Falana's synthetic protocol to synthesize a different compound within the class of novel compounds. The company in Kent State University then filed a patent application and later obtained a patent. The specification disclosed Falana's synthetic protocol and stated that his protocol was used to synthesize the class of claimed compounds. But Falana himself was not named as an inventor on the patent because the claims were directed to compounds, not his methods, and the claims also didn't encompass the compound that he had synthesized. But the Federal Circuit affirmed the district court's ruling that Falana was a co-inventor of the patent, holding that the method of making the claimed compounds required more than simple exercise of ordinary skill in the art, and therefore the discovery of the method to make the compounds was as much a contribution to the compound as the discovery of the compound itself. Therefore, I think this highlights the very specific fact-intensive nature of the inquiry that needs to be made. Oh, Jill, thank you very much. I've been doing this. I, I joined Finnegan over 45 years ago. And did you notice, this is not a law review article, Jill didn't give a cite, but when she said the definite formation, that goes back to a 19th century case even before I was born. And that was the Bergen-Thaler versus Scudder case. That's still the law. Modern cases still quote it. It sounds to me, and I want to direct this, if I may, please, to Amanda. Isn't it true that in the U.S., inventorship isn't exactly determined by a mathematical formulation? If that is so, 
what issues arise if there is an omitted inventor? And what issues can arise if there is a misjoined inventor? And you could answer that and give some examples. That would be super. So, Amanda, it's yours. Thanks, Tom. You're you're absolutely correct that there's no mathematical formulation for determining inventorship in the U.S. It, it's a very oftentimes complicated determination, as Jill just explained. In fact, the analysis can sometimes be so complicated that at least one jurist has commented that inventorship is one of the muddiest concepts in the muddy metaphysics of patent law. But as I mentioned earlier, it's also one of the most important concepts since inventorship impacts not only patentability and patent validity, but also who gets access to the patent rights themselves. Take, for example, the Ethicon case, which involved an invention for a surgical device with an electronic sensor component. The patent named a single inventor who was a medical doctor, but the doctor had consulted with a technician to design the electronic sensor portion of the device, and certain aspects of that feature ended up being recited in dependent claims. When the doctor sued a third party for patent infringement, the court determined that the technician should be added as a joint inventor based on his inventive contribution to those dependent claims. And the accused infringer then obtained a license from the technician to avoid infringement. So omitted inventors can have a huge impact on patent enforceability. And of course, naming people who are not inventors can have the opposite effect of converting a patent that is jointly owned by multiple entities into one that is owned by a single entity. And that's exactly what happened in the University of Pittsburgh versus Hedrick case. The patent named two inventors from the University of Pittsburgh and a few other inventors who were independent researchers. So Pitt had to share its rights in the patent with those other inventors. But when a court later determined that the independent researchers did not actually contribute to the claimed invention, Pitt ended up being the sole owner of the patent. So as you can see, it's really important to get inventorship correct so the proper people have access to the bundle of rights that come along with the patent grant. Amanda, thank you very, very much. That's kind of scary also. No mathematical formulation. It's clear using the techniques that Jill outlined and the comments that Amanda made, you're going to have to do your darn best to try to figure out what inventorship is. And I believe, I think, Jill, you were kind enough to mention inequitable conduct. Uh, yeah, there are some real ramifications here. So what you do, do in good faith. Make a good faith determination of inventorship. And I think you'll be better off down the road as long as you have done that. Now, let me turn back to Jill, if I may. So, Jill, let's say you figure out that the director of research of a very important client of your firm, she insists on being named as the first inventor on every patent. Now, it's clear to you she's not an inventor. It's just she's just not an inventor. So taking into consideration client relationships and legal requirements, can you tell us how you would address this and give some examples, please? 
Sure. I have to say, luckily, I haven't had to deal with this situation, but I'd imagine that I would explain that inventorship is a legal determination. As I mentioned, it's based on conception and on the scope of the final patented claims. So unlike authorship, it doesn't serve as a recognition of hard or good work or of financial support. It's not simply a reward for contribution to the project. It is a legal determination to be made by qualified individuals. And as Amanda noted, it's a very important determination. There can be serious negative consequences to improperly identifying inventors. As noted, a patent having incorrect inventorship is invalid, and it might be correctable, but it might not. Okay, now let's go on to the next uh, point for Amanda. So Amanda, let's say you determine inventorship, but one of the inventors, she insists, I am not an inventor. Can you give us uh, your approach to that with examples, please? Sure, Tom. So as Jill explained, inventorship is a legal determination that looks at who conceived the idea embodied in the patent claims. So if you conduct an inventorship analysis that examines all of the relevant facts and applies the proper legal standards, and you conclude that someone is an inventor, you must list that person as an inventor on the patent application. As I mentioned at the beginning, that determination now saddles the individual with the duty of disclosure and the requirement to disclose the best mode for practicing the invention. In addition, the inventor will have to sign an oath or declaration asserting that she is an inventor and that she understands her obligations to the USPTO. Fortunately, though, the Patent Office provides mechanisms for submitting what they call a substitute statement in lieu of an inventor declaration if the inventor refuses to sign. So all hope isn't lost if the individual refuses to play ball. But if the person refuses to sign an assignment document, and if you can't rely on some other mechanism like an implied assignment, an employment agreement, or a shop right to establish that the inventor conveyed her rights to her employer, then the inventor will own the patent outright. So it's really important to have all of the necessary paperwork in place for your employees in advance of any patent filings. Unfortunately, inventorship determinations are difficult because people are involved. And so you have to deal with different personalities. But our focus as patent practitioners must always be on getting the inventorship determination correct. Uh, Amanda, thank you. All right. Well, let's go on to another question. I want to turn to Jill for this one. Now, in these days, it's, uh, this thing has arisen called artificial intelligence. Now, people have always suspected that my intelligence is artificial, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about machine learning and machine training, some very, very interesting stuff. It's all the rage now. If you went to the AIPLA midwinter, we, midwinter meeting, they had an incredible program about AI. And I see them advertised all the time now, webinars on AI. So it's kind of something you have to know. So Jill, because AI is contributing to the process of making inventions for patenting in the U.S., could you tell us how in the world do you determine inventorship for a patent that is the result, at least in part, of artificial intelligence? Jill, what do you think? 
Well, Tom, myself and patent systems around the globe have been considering this question. Um, it's a very timely question. And to date, the patent systems, the patent offices around the world have decided that although non-human entities can be an applicant, an assignee, and or an owner of a patent, a non-human entity, such as an AI algorithm, cannot be an inventor on a patent application. And in the US, the seminal case that's ongoing in the EDVA is the Thaler v. Iancu case. And in that case, Dr. Thaler filed a patent application that was in 2019 that listed as the sole inventor the artificial intelligence algorithm that he named Dabas. And the USPTO refused to acknowledge inventorship of that AI machine and held that the statutory section, 35 USC section 115A, required that an application have at least one human inventor. And because there was no such human inventor listed for Dr. Thaler's invention, he was unable to get a patent. And that case has now uh, risen to the Eastern District of Virginia. Dr. Thaler ultimately sued the USPTO and cross-summary judgment motions have been filed by each party. They're currently pending in the Eastern District of Virginia. So we will see what happens. But at the current time, the USPTO, as our patent offices around the world, taking the position that at least one human inventor must be listed on a patent application. So with that in mind, your question of how to determine inventorship of inventions involving AI or made by AI is very timely. And I can think of at least several possibilities for human contributions that may rise to the level of inventive contributions, including the person who conceives of and implements the algorithm that's initially used by the AI, so a computer scientist, possibly the person who teaches or trains the AI by supplying data and other information upon which the AI is built, and also possibly contributions by uh, an engineer or another person who identifies a real-world application in which the AI model is to be used, and that may be one of the claimed uses. So those are some options that immediately come to mind of human contributions that may rise to the level of inventive contributions. Hopefully, the facts of most situations will lend themselves to quick and simple identification of a human who conceived of the claimed invention. Um, others may be more difficult. And we'll have to stay tuned to how patent offices around the globe are going to handle more complex situations where a non-human simply does not present itself as a inventor of the claims. Jill, thank you. One of the things I've always thought over the decades, and I love it, uh, I love I love U.S. patent law. One of the reasons I love U.S. patent law. It is the thinking person's profession. We are not. We are not robots. We are not scriveners. We are thinkers. And whether we're patent agents or patent attorneys, 
we have to make determinations and they're legal determinations. So, and you know, Amanda, you really kicked us off here in a great thing when your first, uh, your first answer, because you told us that inventorship can, at least in the first instance, in absence of an agreement to the contrary, can determine ownership. And ownership can be very, very important. I mean, the last thing you want is to end up without an agreement to the contrary, and you have now separate owners. There's cases, the old Zeneca case, where one of the <laughs> one of the inventors basically disclaimed the patent. One of the inventors gave a license to alleged infringer. So when the other inventor, which was in a company, assigned to a company, when they tried to enforce the patent, they couldn't do it because the alleged infringer said, "Hey, what's up? I've already got." a license to use this from why and why, well, she is an inventor and nobody contested that. So very, very important. I also thought, Amanda, you were right on the button when you said, yeah, well, you know, for duty disclosure, if you don't, if you don't get each inventor involved, you need to find out what they think the best mode is. You need to find out what prior art they know about to make sure you don't violate the duty of disclosure. And so you might say, well, you know, Irving, why don't we do this? Why don't we just be over-inclusive on inventorship? Well, if I had to lean one way or the other, ah, yeah, over-inclusive may be good, except you run into Amanda's dilemma that, oh, if you're too over-inclusive, maybe you're including inventors who don't have an obligation to assign to the, the, the entity that thinks they're the owner, and you can really be setting them up. So I would say... Uh, approach inventorship, kind of like you approach, you know, your your pet um, boa constrictor carefully, very carefully. Now, Jill went through us uh, through for us the techniques to uh, use to assess inventorship, and I thought those were fabulous. And did you notice what I what I came out of that with? First, she had the correct legal standard. She went all the way back to Mergenthaler and got the definite formation uh, of the invention, blah blah blah, permanent and complete, blah 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 blah. She got all that. And so that was important. Know the right legal standard. And then once you know the right legal standard, it's very difficult if you can't talk to the people. Now, there's practical issues here. What if all the inventors speak a language you don't speak? Let's say they all speak, pick a language, Mandarin, and you speak English, French, Spanish, Japanese maybe, but you don't speak Mandarin. So how are you going to effectively interview those particular inventors who don't speak your language? I'd like to, if I could, uh, maybe kick this back to Jill and say, Jill, do you have any tips on what you would do if it turns out that the inventors all speak a language that is different from the many languages you speak? I think I would employ a translator to assist me perhaps an in-house counsel who is fluent in English and the language of the inventors, or perhaps someone at the firm here at Finnegan. We have a lot of non-English native speakers, and uh, I would request assistance in that case. Well, that was very helpful. And I think that that's a great plug for diversity in our profession. When I started at Finnegan in 1975, there was not a single patent professional who had two, two, uh, had two X chromosomes. They, they all had a Y chromosome. And not a single patent professional 
spoke a language, except I lived in Spain for two years, so I spoke Spanish. But that was kind of it. And I think what has happened in our profession, it has basically developed so robustly and so wonderfully that now, whether it's our firm or your firm or your company, more and more we have diversity, diversity of particularly in linguistic abilities. And that indeed can be really, really important. Now, then we learned, uh, Amanda took us through that inventorship is not exactly determined by a mathematical formulation. And so then she went through the issues. Well, what if there's an omitted inventor? What issues can arise if there's misjoined inventor? And remember, a lot of times you will come into a case in a little bit different route. You might be representing the suitor in a due diligence and you were looking at the patents. You were looking at the patents of the target. Well, you didn't determine inventorship, but you surely during your due diligence, you want to do everything you can to figure out inventorship, was it correct? Uh, if it wasn't correct, what was the correct inventorship? And then I think as we were counseled by Amanda, whoa, there may be things that weren't disclosed because not all the correct inventors were, were put forward. Now, one of the great things I thought that came in with AIA was the concept of supplemental examination, which Amanda has done, and she and I have lectured a lot on that, Jill has, that supplemental examination is kind of the way to correct things. And if you find information that wasn't provided to the patent office when the patent was issuing, you can go in for supplemental examination. Now, at first I thought, erroneously, as many of my thoughts, I thought, oh, now that'll never work. It's going to take forever. You won't resolve things. Not so. We've done an exhaustive study of all the supplemental examination proceedings and find that they're moving through in about a year. And some amazing things happen. And people can get a lot of bounce out of supplemental examination, except as of today, number of cases in which a patent has been litigated that went through supplemental examination and there was a determination on the merits, whether the supplemental examination was effective in basically correcting omissions, misstatements, mischaracterizations, et cetera. The answer is zero. So again, as I think Jill said, stay tuned because you got to stay tuned on this. And the statutes, I think, are quite clear, but I've been fooled before. And so you got to watch that as a development. But this inventorship issue, uh, I, I am fortunate to do a bunch of due diligences for either uh, particular suitors. And then even if I'm representing a target, they're going to want to know about inventorship. So we have to know. So that's important to keep in mind. Now, we talked about the issue of the director of research who insists that she's the inventor on every patent. And I think there, Jill got us out of the woods because Jill made it very clear that the thing to do in that situation is you take charge. You're either the patent agent, the patent attorney, you take charge. You make the determination and then you just give them your conclusions. And it's really hard for people to argue with legal conclusions. And then finally, we had, well, well, next to finally, the penultimate. What if somebody insists they're not an inventor? Again, it's up to you. It's up to you to make the legal determination and say, well, maybe you don't feel like an inventor, but we've reviewed the facts very carefully in our legal conclusion. You are an inventor for X, Y, and Z. Now, what are you going to do if in deposition she says, well, I was never an inventor anyway. I don't know why I'm listed here. I don't know why I'm in this deposition. That's not the nicest thing. But if you were painstaking, as Jill and Amanda have counseled us to be, 
in determining inventorship, if you've done a, a painstaking determination of inventorship, you can defend that. And you can basically, in the litigation, wherever it is, say, well, no, that's the subjectively, she may not feel like she's an inventor, but she is. She qualifies for X, Y, and Z. And that's important. And then finally, stay tuned on this whole issue of artificial intelligence, because that is a big, big, big deal as we sit here in the year 2021. Well, I hope that you found this podcast useful. Uh, over a year ago, I would have said, gee, I hope you enjoy this while you're driving home. Wait a minute. We're all home anyways. <laughs> there is no driving home. So with that, I believe that we have wrapped up and I wanted to tell Amanda and Jill how pleasant it has been for me to interview them today. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to a special podcast from Finnegan. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.